Hey, it's the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Today, I've got a good one, and it's a unique episode because this one is actually cross-posted from my other podcast called Bootstrapped Web, which I co-host with my buddy Jordan Gao. Um, been doing that one for several years now, actually. But it was one of the rare episodes where we actually had a couple of guests on, and it was Jordan's two co-founders in their company called Carthook. It's a product for e-commerce stores, which handles abandoned carts, but it also has like a one-page checkout for Shopify. Really cool product if you're in the e-commerce space. But on this episode, I kind of interviewed the three of them about their product development process. And as I'm sure you all know, I'm a kind of a process geek. So this was really great stuff. It was, it was great to hear all the different perspectives from Jordan as like the non-technical kind of sales marketing head of the company and Ben, who's kind of like the technical, but mostly head of product and design and their technical lead rock was on the show where we're talking all things tech. We talk about their tech stack, their choices, how they've changed technologies over the years and the reasons for that. And then how they prioritize different features, what to build next, how they get the entire company. They've got a, a team of about 14 or 15 people. Everybody's kind of like represented in, it's actually a very democratic kind of approach to product development. It was really interesting. So yeah, just a lot of really uh, interesting nuggets for me personally. If anybody who is who's running any sort of software product or if you're in a team environment, and I, you know, really a lot of this stuff can be applied to building like a productized service company as well. So yeah, a lot of really interesting insights. I hope you guys enjoy this one. One thing I will kind of uh, apologize up front, you know, their audio wasn't the best that it could be because basically the three of them were sitting in an office together in Portland, all sharing the same the same microphone um, while I'm over here in, in Connecticut. So, you know, you can hear everyone, but it's not as ideal as the audio usually is on this podcast. But anyway, with that, here is my conversation with Jordan, Ben, and Rock from Carthook. Enjoy. All right, welcome to Bootstrapped Web. We got a good one for you today. It's kind of a special episode. I am joined today by not only Jordan, but Ben and Rock from the Carthook team. What's up, Ellis? Hey. <laughs> this is uh, It's so quiet now, but like just before we were recording, it was like, it, it was crazy hectic in, in your room. Like, so, so just so listeners know, we've got the three of you guys in the same room together in Portland, and I'm here on the other side of the country myself here, but... So like they're literally sitting in the same room. They're kind of sharing one microphone here. Yeah. Why don't I do my best to set it up and then, and then I'm going to try to go into the background. <laughs> I'm just really going to talk when I need to defend myself. <laughs> uh, okay. So this is, this is a special episode. Uh, it was just a great coincidence that Ben, who is our head of product and my co-founder, we've been doing this for a few years together, uh, is in town in Portland. I uh, spent a few weeks here uh, for us to kind of really focus on our process and iron certain things out and kind of plan for the next phase. While he was here, we just saw a great opportunity to bring Rock, who's our lead engineer, our VP of engineering, and runs our Slovenian side of the company. So they're both here. It's Friday. What do we usually do on Fridays? We record this podcast. So we, we thought it was a great opportunity, not just to make fun of me, but also to dig into the technical and process and product side of Carthook. Uh, so that's who is on the mic. So why don't we do like a quick, you know, 30 second sort of thing for Ben to introduce himself and then Rock will introduce himself. And then we'll kind of let Brian's curiosity kind of lead, lead the conversation. So Ben, say hello. Great. 
Hey, I'm Ben. Um, Jordan's <laughs> business husband. Um, my background is in design and programming. So one of the funny things of when Jordan and I were first talking about working together in Hardhook was I was like, I don't want to be the head of technology, but I will in the short term. And eventually when we get big, can shift over to a, a more product role. And so I think, and that's been an interesting part of just even having Rock. Because Brock got in, involved really early into the business. And I think that um, that might be unique when you have like a technical co-founder. But it, I think it was, it was a very, it was a part of our original conversation, which was, I'll come on and do this. But from a technical perspective, we really need someone who's an amazing engineer. Whereas I'm dangerous at, at a bunch of different things. Very cool. So I guess, Ben, like what we were talking about last episode is like that full stack product person. You can go from design to marketing, to sales, to building a functional product. You kind of come at it with that sort of uh, like a five tool player kind of thing. Yeah. We were saying how envious we were of people who can get a company off the ground on their own. Yeah. I didn't totally know that about the history there. Like you came in intending to like not be so deep into the technical side eventually and just kind of focus on the product and design. That's cool. I think it was literally probably a part of our first conversation in person. I remember us explicitly talking about it, which was like, in a two-person company, it does not make sense to have someone just product. And so I was like, I know that this is my value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was setting expectations for Yeah. So, so Rock, like where, where are you from and what's your background? Yeah, right, so nice to meet you again. And your, and your role today at, at Carthook. So I actually started... I think it was about three or four months after Ben joined. Uh, ben and Jordan found me through a mutual friend. His name is Matei, and Jordan was, I think, at a like, corporate meeting. Um, we, were t- we did like a course, an online yeah. course together. And so I, I knew him, and I knew that he like, knew a lot of yeah. developers in that, uh, in that part of Europe. So that's, that's who we first got to like, help us find someone. Yeah, so that was like, a nice coincidence. We first said that we're going to meet, uh, they were going to work together for like three or four months as a short project where I would just take out a, a few tech issues. <laughs> but then three years in, we actually never separated. It, it grew into a nice little, nice company. <laughs> so fixing a couple of small technical bugs turned into like building and then rebuilding a whole SaaS a couple of times. Yeah, exactly. And you have ownership of the business too. Sorry? And you have ownership of the business. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. in the process, yeah. We have- yeah. It's one of these things that we've talked about, Brian. When, when you're bootstrapped and you don't, you can't, everything's risk. And so anything that's unknown, like the relationship with an engineer, is risky. And so what we did with Rock, as well as all the engineers that we, that we worked with early on, is we set everything up with the expectation of it being a trial. We're going to give this a go for a month or two, but there are no promises. To kind of make sure that the expectations were set that way because everything was so risky to commit to someone for a year is just a lot of risk. So that's, that's kind of how it started. Cool. So, so, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about like the, your processes today of how you actually run the product and ship features and manage it and everything. But, you know, so like, why don't, why don't you give us like a view of what the company looks like today? Like how many people and how many people are on the tech team? So we actually have most of our engineers in Slovenia. It started, I think that about a good year ago, it moved from one person, which was me, to two. So our, our second hire was a full stack engineer also that did a lot, of, a lot of difference and he helped a lot to scale the process. And only recently, let's say 
four to six months ago, we've up to our team to three and then four, and now there's five engineers in Slovenia, including me. Um, and we have an office there. We moved two times into bigger offices. So there's a lot of interesting um, obstacles to go through um, around just coordination, how to manage process going from one person to five, because that's basically five Xing. Yeah. I am curious about like, as the team grew from just you on the tech side to now you're up to five engineers. So you're a full stack guy. The next engineer after you was also full stack. As you then added to it, did you start to hire like a front end specialist and a back end specialist? And Yeah. So it's always good to have a few people that are full stack. So they understand the whole process and how everything is interconnected. But it's always very, very good to have specialists in, in specific areas. So we actually tried to find a third full stack person, but then after talking for a while and, and realizing that it's just better to go into actually like specialized areas. So now we have one front end developer. Um, her name is today and she's amazing in front end. She can, she can do anything that we throw her way. And we have two um, back end developers do purely backend. I know they can; they, they're capable of doing uh, front end too, but they're both specialized in backend. So uh, mostly, Jan and I take uh, any additional front end work at this point. Um, but the, the goal and the plan is to hire uh, at least one more front end in the near future, and then we'll see how it goes from there. Got it. I guess this is a question for Ben. So, like, how about on the design and user experience, user interface kind of stuff? Is that is that all you or are there other designers on the team or who else is kind of in charge of that kind of stuff? Um, we've had a couple of freelancers work on us on a project basis. We have an amazing designer, Jane. He knows Jane. Okay, Jane. Oh, Jane. So Jane Porter. Is, is absolutely amazing. And she does her work at A is like 10 times better than anything I could ever do. Um, so it's a dream to have a designer who loves design and is really good at it. I think... Yeah, early on, I did all the design and the programming. Um, and then as we had more resources, it was clear that we should start using those resources to hire specialists. Cool. And so I guess when it comes to that kind of design side of the process of the interface and building features, you guys look at that as like, that's something that you could hand off to a project-based contractor. You don't necessarily need somebody full-time. We, we dream of it. We dream of it. <laughs> I would say that where the designer is most valuable at our stage is establishing a style guide effectively. So we have a lot of assets. So for example, we recently redid our entire admin. And with that was, well, what came out of that was really a style guide for our redesigned admin. So we have, like, we've, we've built several pages that weren't in the original design. And those pages were effectively me looking at the style guide that Jane established and then just translating it to other pages. Got it. One of the interesting things about the transition over the past six months that we haven't touched on, but it's true of all three of us, is that all three of us now do a lot less, quote, work that we used to do, right? Rock used to write every piece of code. Then he wrote half the code once Jan was there. And now he writes a lot less code. Uh, same with, with Ben, it's kind of gone into this more managerial process role and what we need to happen, who needs the information. And it, I just don't do anything anymore, which is exactly what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of, it, it moved around. So, I mean, I know that we have some pretty technical folks in the audience. I know we have a lot of non-technical folks in the audience too. 
but maybe we should just kind of touch on like, can you guys just kind of run through what is the uh, the tech stack on Cardhook today? Yep. Brian has asked me this before and I have butchered it. This is your chance <laughs> to out the actual truth here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with some honesty. Our tech stack has <laughs> evolved. It's a complicated the, question. There's been a lot of, there's been some wrong choices, some choices based on lack of experience. This, see, this is actually really interesting to me. I want to, I want to dig into this. The choices, because like this is something that I'm just beginning to get into myself and I don't even understand all the different things to consider. So yeah, why don't you tell us like what is in the product today and then we can kind of go back of like what the history was. So for our main app, the, the Funnels app, the stack is as follows today. <laughs> it, again, it, has, it evolved um, over the last two years. But today we, for our API, for our backend, we use Laravel. Then for our checkout pages, we use a combination of Laravel views and uh, the Vue.js framework for manipulation of the front end. And then for our admin dashboard, we use Angular. Actually, it's not it's Angular 4 or 5. Uh, I think it's 5 something. And that is our core stack right now. We've tried, for checkout pages, we've tried several different approaches. And the editor itself, is, it's Angular at this point. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot about the editor. <laughs> so many, many so right now the editor is, we're actually working on uh, a new version of it, but the current version is in, it's a combination of Angular and jQuery and some vanilla JavaScript. And it, it did the job, but now we're, we're looking for something more powerful. So we're actually going to use an existing framework to get a good head start. And yeah, we're, we're using an open source editor that will, that will not be named uh, and bending it to our will. Exactly. Got it. So for the structure, we have AWS, we're using CloudFront, we're using SQS. We're basically using the whole uh, AWS, or not the whole, but we're trying to use as much AWS as possible because it's very easy to manage. We started off using DigitalOcean, but we outgrew, our process outgrew DigitalOcean uh, with the amount of, of people and uh, time that we, we had to invest into the infrastructure itself. So AWS did us, it was a lot easier to manage compared to our initial setup on DigitalOcean. And we use CloudFront, we use S3, we use Elastic Beanstalk for server management, RDS for database management. So I, I'm not sure if I'm getting too detailed right now or going too much into detail. Only too detailed for me, but everyone in the audience. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know what half of those things are. I'm sure there's some people in the audience who do. I'm curious, like, if you can, <laughs> I don't know, dumb this down at all, but like, you mentioned that you, you were on DigitalOcean and you moved to AWS. It's easier to manage and the number of people on your team had to do with that. Like, what, what was the issue there? Was it a cost issue? Was it a, like a scaling or technology issue? Like, what, what was that? So it was mostly scaling, a scaling issue because cost-wise, we're actually, I think we three or maybe even 4x our uh, mm-hmm. server or infrastructure costs when we went from DigitalOcean to S3. Sorry, to AWS. Yeah, we, we had this funny thing in the company that in the beginning, they kept coming to me and involving the word money in the technical decisions. And I was like, you fools, we're trying to build something worth like $100 million. Don't tell me we're going to save 100 bucks a month. Spend whatever we need to spend. And eventually, they actually took that advice. And now I regret it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just to set up the context here and what Rock's talking about, what Ben's talking about, and just to get garner a little sympathy from the audience. We went from 
a complete MVP that barely worked to processing $5,000 a day to a year later processing up to a million dollars a day. So it was going to be messy no matter what we did. And that, that all of this was flying the airplane 500 miles an hour and me screaming at them to change the engines. So it was, it was just a difficult, it was going to be difficult no matter what we did. Yeah. And so the, like the choice, the decision are on where you prioritize is like spend more, make it more reliable, fast uptime, you know, able to scale to, you know, speed. I mean, you're, you're dealing with checkout, you're dealing with transactions, money, like it just, you can't be cutting corners. That's kind of the decision that you guys made. Yeah, it's, it's such a critical product that we, we couldn't afford any single points of failure. And AWS actually solves that really well because our initial setup in DigitalOcean had, it, it was okay, but it had potential failures, which in a checkout product, you can't, you can't afford it. It needs 100% uptime or 99.99999% because something happens in a year that they just have to turn things off. Like even if you turn it off for two minutes, it's cost money. Yeah. It's going to cost a lot. So like kind of going back into the history of Cardhook a little bit, well, you mentioned that today it's on PHP, Laravel, a mix of like different components. Some are in Vue, some are in Angular. What was it before this? Like, was it always in, in PHP from the beginning or, or what else were you using in the last couple of years? Yeah, so the API side, we, we chose Laravel straight right from the beginning. So our recovery products already had the API built out in Laravel. But the checkout app itself went through a couple of iterations. Um, so one of the biggest issues, not, not issues, but challenges was how to make the app um, load really fast, how to, how to remove any bootstrapping time. So by iterations and new versions and learning new things and just through experience and, and made some mistakes that could have been avoided with more experience, but you know, things like that are, are just reflections going like looking back now, we've actually managed to get the load time down for the checkout pages um, in average from like seven seconds to about 500 milliseconds. So it started off as an Angular 1 app and then the Angular 2 framework came out and we, we saw that it, it offered a lot of um, good optimizations. Like it loads faster, the, the files are smaller, you can do server-side re server rendering. So we then rewrote it into Angular 2. It did a lot of good things, but still, we still weren't there. So we were still just trying, we were just improving. Each month we were thinking about new things. Uh, and then in the end, we just said, okay, we need single, we, we need to get away from the single uh, page application structure because that's, it's going to be slower no matter what we do. And we just did a full rewrite a couple of months ago. I think that it's been released about three months ago now, two, three months ago. Um, oh, the, yeah, they all know oh. the, the whole, <laughs> they, know <laughs> story. they know about what we went through in the, you know, the run up to the release and then having to dial it back and then re-release. So that's what we rewrote. We went from Angular 2 to, to the Laravel stack that he talked about because a lot of the stuff, the interesting things are, it's not even interesting. It's just like, you're just going to make mistakes because you can't know. So you can do your research. Yeah, you have, you have to go through the whole process. Yeah, you, you choose technology based on what you know and then what you know changes and then you have to kind of go back. So ideally you don't have to go back. You know, one, one thing stuck out to me, you mentioned that, that it was a single page application. And when you redid it, you went a different way on that. This is something that I've been reading up on this past week. 
I mean, my my SaaS ops calendar has been, it was built in, in Laravel and Vue and essentially built as a single page application from the beginning. And I wasn't quite sure about that because I knew that there were certain pages and things that didn't need to be part of a single page application. And but I don't know, my, my developers kind of pushed back and said like, oh, it's more efficient this way. And I was like, all right, I don't really get it anyway. So let's just do that. That's literally the miscalculation you made. <laughs> like literally, I mean, it's like a very rational. <laughs> you know, like now, I mean, even, and, and then I've worked with a couple of other developers over the past year on, on a few different features and some separate products. And still they're all like, you know, we should just use Vue and make it a, an SPA. And the more that I'm reading up on this and I'm starting to really dig in and, and learn, you know, to code applications myself now, like, I just feel like there's a lot of overhyping in using JavaScript frameworks, making everything single page application, you know, like rendering things on, on the client side. Like it doesn't have to be that way. And, and it seems like it, it opens you up to a lot more bugs and vulnerabilities. And if you don't have the resources of like a whole developer team to support that for a year, it might not make the most sense. Like, and I'm just, just starting to, to try to understand this. So maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering about that. Yeah, I would, I would say that the best answer for this would be, it depends on the context and the application and the use case. There's so many factors. For us, for example, like the, the biggest problem to solve was loading really fast and uh, make it very reliable. And we knew that to achieve those two main uh, pain points that we were experiencing, we needed to go away from single page applications. But if you're trying not that worry, worried about like the bootstrapping times and the loading times and all that, then single page applications might be really good for you. They're also easier to maintain, uh, especially like with the new, and I'm not trying to overhype Angular right now, <laughs> but especially with the new Angular uh, framework and there's enforced structure and all that, it's actually easier to maintain uh, a larger app, like a larger single page application. Um, because our admin, for example, which is turned out into a lot of code by now is pretty easy to maintain and to upgrade and to reuse specific components. So there's a lot of um, upsides to using SPAs. And at the same time, there's a lot of downsides to, to using them. So a lot of it depends on the context and the us usability of uh, your use case in particular. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and we're going to get back into like the process stuff and releasing features and like stuff that Jordan probably wants to talk about. But like one, uh, one more uh, one more question kind of on this technical stuff. You know, one of these things that I'm starting to wrap my head around now is, is like the maturity of these frameworks, right? Like you look at something like Vue, they just recently went from version one to version two. And so like I decided to try to dive into learning Ruby and, and Ruby on Rails. And part of the decision there is like that's a mature framework. It's been around for like over 10 years, really popular. A lot of developers today be like, oh, that's, you know, that's old news. You, you know, you should be using Angular or whatever. But like, but if you're going from version like four to five, it's more backward compatible. Whereas like we recently upgraded from view one to two and it broke the entire app. And so, yeah. and again, if you have the resources, if you have the developers on a team to manage that sort of thing and then fix all the things, like you're just devoting all this extra time and cash to these younger frameworks when these upgrades happen. And I know there's, there's a lot of like code quality issues that, that go, come into play there. But again, it's just, I'm, I'm wondering about these questions for folks who are bootstrapping new software startups. Um, maybe that should factor into the decision more than I hear it in the conversations. Like, like I'm not hearing enough of like, you should choose a, a more mature framework rather than the newest, hottest, trendiest stuff. 
Well, as, as Ben will tell you repeatedly, a, a lot of our technical mistakes actually originated on my desk. And when part of the decision-making in using Angular is we didn't know what this product was. We didn't even know if people wanted it. We were taking this huge risk on building a second product when the first product was just kind of starting to get traction. So I very specifically said, guys, we need to figure out people even want it. Just get it out the door in two months, not in 12 months. And that, you can see how that leads you toward frameworks, toward not building everything custom and everything perfect, right? And then, then we start to learn. And, and so even if you listen or, or just kind of know what we talked about as our current stack, the admin itself, the app that people click on and build stuff in, it's still an Angular. It's fine. Our only real issue is that we have a second part of our product that interacts with consumers, so our merchants are publishing something onto the web and there all compromise goes out the window. You, you can't compromise on what a consumer's going to interact with. It has to be perfect and fast and mobile responsive and everything has to be perfect as opposed to if you run a CRM app that the public never sees, only your customer interacts with, you, you have a very different set of decisions and issues. Right. All right. So, you know, just getting into the running an actual product here. One of the things I think would be interesting to hear is like, I know that this has evolved a little bit like everything else, but like today, how do you guys manage road mapping and planning out what the next couple of features that you're going to, uh-oh, I see some, <laughs> everyone's like, oh shit. <laughs> but you know, like how, how do you guys handle that? Like, I'm not talking about the stuff that you're working on today, the issues on your plate today, but like thinking about, all right, what are we going to be building next month or next week? How do you guys think about that kind of stuff? I think it's a good week for this question. It is a good week for this question. <laughs> yeah. I think we should, we should let Ben yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. where uh, maybe some of the frustrations of us not running a process. When Ben and I first met, I was like, yo, I'm just not that into process. <laughs> he was like, that's fine. I'm okay, anti-process. Like, you know, marriage counseling. Uh, <laughs> ben can speak to how things felt in the beginning and then, you know, how we encountered a lot of pain because we didn't focus on process and kind of now, now what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the truth is that process matters only at a certain point. And I think I would use the word framework instead of process because process just sounds inflexible. But, you know, th- th- that's semantics. Um, I think the biggest challenge for me has been like, I am very much a creature habit. So for me, process, like as Jordan alluded to, like I, I love process. I love eliminating decisions. Um, I think for me personally, what I realized, let's say like eight years ago was that you need to have the right goal. Like the goal needs to inform the process and just having process doesn't necessarily, that could lead you the wrong direction. Like, if you're driving and you're, you think you're driving somewhere else, but you're driving to like the wrong location, it doesn't matter how great your process for driving is if you're going the wrong way. So I think that's, you know, that's the complementary aspect of it. So I think I've just been trying to figure out over the years at what stage, what processes or frameworks matter and which, and then at what stage are they more limiting than they are helpful. Do you guys have frameworks today around like just deciding which features to build, which ones just not to build, which ones to push off to later? Um, we do. So I'll give you a high level outline of, of and I'll say, I'll, I'm going to laugh because I'm just going to say theoretically how it should work. As I say, my challenge has literally been being like, all right, like empathizing with the rest of our team who isn't necessarily as uh, process oriented. Um, so I think that's been the biggest lesson for me is find that balance between what is it about 
like I see this process, why can't we just do this process? And then realizing, well, it's easy for me in part because I just am very good, I think, at following processes and not everyone else is. And so part of that requires understanding how other people work to find a process that doesn't just work for me, but works for the entire company. So without further ado, here's the process. Uh, we have a effectively a spreadsheet of all the potential features we might build. I think people would love to hear the tools too. Okay. Yeah. Airtable, which is a like smart spreadsheet. Um, but you could do this in Google Sheets too. It doesn't matter. Or Excel. I don't know why the hell we use Excel though. So we have an Airtable that lists all these different features that, that we've considered. We try to, like the goal here is, is to frame them as like job to be done stories where it's, a lot. Admittedly, we have a lot of our features aren't phrased like that, but the goal would be like, here's the, here's the problem, here's what the person wants, and here's why it's important, and here's the context for why they want it. So it's really, it's focused on what's the problem, not the solution. The solution should come by understanding the problem and like what are people trying to accomplish. So we have this long list of, let's say, like a hundred different things we might build. Just real quick on, on that list, like how much of that is coming from user feedback, user requests versus just what you, you guys vision of, of what a, this solution should be? It's a combination. So I actually I didn't even include another part because I didn't want to get too far into the weeds. But before features go into Airtable, we actually have another product that we use called Shipwright where our success team and our support team, and even me, when we come across things customers are saying to us, either through like uh, help chat or intercom or, or, what, or even in emails, we can tag things and identify what theme does this feature request or whatever relate to. So for example, Shipwright basically is an app that lets you store and catalog and categorize customer feedback. So we go into Shipwright, you see a list of like conversations we've had with customers for certain parts of those conversations are highlighted and then related back to a theme like, oh, this is someone saying something about payment processing. So from, I can tell you that just me going through and looking at the different themes of, of what we have in Shipwright, I can tell you exactly how many customers or people have said we want to use Afterpay for payment processing, right? And Afterpay is like a really popular uh, like Australian way of paying. So Shipwright for Alton capture a lot of the raw is where we capture raw feedback from customers. And then once a month or once a quarter, I will go through and I will just read through all these different things in Shipwright. And then I'll try to capture some themes and I'll, I'll turn that theme into a, a record within Airtable. So if a lot of people ask for Afterpay, as I mentioned in Shipwright, then when I go and I review and do all the categorization of our Shipwright insights, so to speak, I will then create like a, a story that that like about Afterpay. Um, so like as a merchant, I want Afterpay because I live in Australia and a lot of my customers are in Australia and they need this in order to like what. Cool. So after that would be one of the features in our Airtable. And then quarterly as a team, we go in and the leadership basically goes through and says, hey, of, this, of these 100 things, what are the probably like 15 or 25 things that we realistically would probably want to do in the next quarter or just consider doing? And then next to each of these features, we categorize, we, we basically score the feature in like three different categories, which is what's the potential, what's a, the, the perceived demand by our customer base? And we'll say like, customers really want this or customers don't. 
And then the next thing we, we look at is, well, what's the potential business impact on adding this feature? Is this actually going to help the business make more money? Is it something that might only incrementally help as opposed to like be a huge amount of value? And then the third category or theme is effort. How much effort will, will, will it require for us to implement this feature? That's technical effort, like how much effort will be to build, but also that could in, in, in include, well, how difficult would this be for us to roll out? Like the, the whole idea there is just to get a, a general sense of what's the uh, range of complexity and cost and value and whatever. And that gives you a number. And that number is not supposed to be like the truth. What the number does is it gives you relative, it gives you general, you can start to be able to compare the, the perceived relative score of, of hundred different things or 50 different things. And you just use that as a, like for context, so you get relative, it's really focused on relative value. Yeah. It's really just kind of like a data point, but in terms of your actual final decision of what to build, you're not just going to completely adhere to whatever the, the data on the list is. It, you still have to make a, a gut decision. Absolutely. And we ask people to, to score all the features themselves independently so that we can actually compare. Because part of this whole process is looking and being like, all right, Jordan says this is like a 10. Like this is super, super valuable and it could like transform our business, whereas I rated it like a two. So that so looking at like radical differences in how people have have, have scored a feature is also be a really important conversation in the company because it's like well why do I think this is a two versus Jordan thinking it's a ten and so that can lead to well there's information I didn't realize that or insight that Jordan has about our customer needs that I didn't so it ends up becoming like an actual useful tool internally to understand like. Is the team on the same page in terms of who our target customer is, our ideal customer, and what's valuable to them and why? It's kind of like a way to frame the conversation. Really. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. Who's who's in this? Is it like the three of you or is anybody else? Ideally, it'd be a spokesperson from every, from every department. So what we're talking about is like, we have a list of 100 things. It doesn't make sense for 14 people to all go through and look at 100 things. So what we'll typically do is have one spokesperson representative from each department go in and they can be a part of that initial conversation where we whittle 100 things down to 25. When we get to 25, that's when the entire company gets involved and we have like a, sh a short conversation around uh, where everyone will score of those 25 things. We'll go over everyone's score for that just, again, as, as a talking point, just to see are we all on the same page. I think it's a good opportunity for the tech team also to be more integrated on the customer side. Because we all know that that's a, a balance. Everyone sells engineers should be doing customer support and talking to customers all day long. That's great in theory. The question is, how do you do it in practice? And so this is one of those things where it forces engineers to talk over the features and be a part of the success and support team. And so you guys, from what I understand, you don't do that? Like you guys have dedicated customer support people, but the engineers are just focused on code. But then you guys interface. Internally. We don't have engineers interact with customers directly, not at least not on the first level, but yeah, but the engineers, they don't like, it's not like they don't email back customers when it makes sense, especially we have, you know, we've talked the 80-20 for our high value, our VIP customers. When they send an email, they get to know us. And so if they email me and Rock directly on an email with a question, Rock gets back to them. So there's some interaction, but we're, we've never... We've never seen it makes sense for us to have an engineer spend a full day per week on customer support. That, at least that's not how we've done it thus far. So we've tried it. We tried here and there, but I don't know. It, it, 
Although I, the more we talk to people, the more they actually recommend that mm-hmm. we would start doing that, like investing a day per month at least, where um, a developer, sorry, a day per week, where a specific developer is assigned um, technical support and yeah, to get them the deadlines, yeah, to just understand uh, any any pain points and also to to feel the merchant side, to to understand that it's not just him coding. A product that's not used anywhere, that it's an actual product that helps people achieve specific um, uh, goals. And it makes you think differently also when you start, when, when you do the code, because you're getting old, you're actually starting to realize that if you push bad code, it's going to affect the people that you help, that you help like a day ago or two days ago. Right. A real person. Yeah, a real yeah. person. In the other end. Not just silent out. So I, I was just going to say, I wanted, uh, it, right where Ben is right now in the process is when it, when it gets interesting, right? So I wanted to come back to say, okay, now we've got our 15 things that we're actually going to consider for this quarter. And then from there, what, what? Yeah, that was where I was going to go. Like, like you said, you have 15 things, but then how do you start to put it into production, into building? I mean, not like production live. So when we have the 15 things, we'll go over as a team and, and we'll talk about everyone's scores and we'll arrive at a conclusion of, all right, here are the three or four maybe like two, three, four things that we're going to do over the next quarter. At this point, we've not committed to building those things. What we've said is that at this sort of level of specificity, we think these are worth exploring further. So for everything that we decided that we want to actually potentially implement, we create a product document. So um, with the example of Afterpay, for example, we would build, we would create a, a, a document notion um, which is what we use for, for our internal docs. We don't generally use Google Docs, we use Notion. And we'll create a, a product doc that effectively contains all the knowledge going forward about building this feature. Um, it starts with like a, what's a high-level product summary, which again, is like the, the JavaScript done framework, which is what's the problem that we're trying to solve by creating this, this feature? What's the research behind it? Meaning like, what, like why do we think this will actually be valuable to customers, what's feedback, so like user reviews and stuff might go there. But the purpose is really just like a few sentences explaining what's this product and why should we actually build it. The next thing is that uh, an engineer needs to go in and do some high-level research. So the product team creates this product doc with the product summary. Then an engineer goes in and does some uh, cursory research to try to get a, a deeper sense of how complicated would this actually be. After those two have have, have created sort of like that, that, that high-level document. Every couple of weeks, the team will go and will review all the, all the docs that have gotten to that level of research. So as I said, there's like, we're like, we're going to build three things. So we could probably build those, create those three product docs pretty quickly in like, we'll say like an hour and a half. So the next time the team talks, we would do this thing called a, a party. Ahead of the party, everyone has to go in and review the, those the high-level research docs and then come to the party with their homework, meaning that they've already gone through, they've reviewed it, they've added any comments or notes, and they have in their, in their you know, they have like notes themselves of what do they want to talk about. The purpose of the party is effectively, like we'll say a 25 minute conversation of everyone who has an opinion, be able to talk about it and contribute it. If you haven't done any work ahead of the meeting, you can attend it, but you can't participate. Huh. From that party, that is when people like the support team 
might be like, hey, I actually had some specific conversations with merchants about Afterpay. Here's a little bit more information that maybe wasn't captured or encapsulated in the Airtable uh, record of that feature. It also is where we start to start talking about like, what are some of the, like, what's the scope of this? Um, are there specific use cases that are most important that make sure that we have built from the very beginning and there's certain things that don't really matter? It's really where we get, it goes, we're just, we're resuming in on the feature. Yeah, you know, this is actually really interesting to me because it's like this concept of, of the party. Because I, I haven't really heard this talked about before. I'm, I'm sure other teams are doing it, but this idea of like, all right, because everybody talks about the prioritization of features. Everybody's got some sort of list of 100 things and everyone's doing customer requests and you want to build certain things. And then I see a lot of blog posts and talks and podcasts about that part of the process. But then after you you know go through that data and, and you do the technical research, you do the customer research, you document it all. It's like you're having this, this meeting, this party like one last time before you really start to dive in just to make sure that all of those assumptions are still correct and kind of course correct before you rush ahead into building. If from a product point of view, it's getting input and someone on the success team has different input from someone on the uh, product team versus the marketing team versus the support. So you're getting institutional knowledge focused in on one thing. From a a management point of view, the other thing you're doing is you're getting buy-in. You're getting everyone to think about it, talk about it together, be part of the process, not feel excluded, not feel like, you know, engineering just throws out a product and say, hey, go support this now. So everyone gets to be part of it. And then a few weeks later, it starts to like make its way through early access. And then all of a sudden it gets to push production and you, you were part of it. You are a part of the living, breathing organism that creates these things. It's, it's not something to be underestimated because yeah, we've done it wrong and, and it feels wrong. When you just like, I guess this feature's coming out without me having anything to do with it. Yeah, very cool. So then the party happens. After the party, it's the after party. After party. <laughs> so that's where the product owner and the engineer who's going to be building that feature, they break off. And over the course of like a couple of days, the engineer will, will, will dive in and actually do like all of the technical research. Um, the goal of that is for the engineer effectively to come back with like, the lowest common atomic unit of what would be required to build that feature. So you should come back with like a bunch of Jira tasks, which is how we manage our, our sprints and our engineering. You should come back and with a series of Jira tasks. In an, and in an ideal world, we should be able to just hand an engineer, any engineer, but it'd be the engineer who built it, but we should be able to hand an engineer this, these list of tasks and they should be able to build the feature. And so we have this concept of basically what we've, what we've done is we've built, we've put this feature in a box and tied like a bow around it. So everything involved or in, uh, in building this feature should now be collected. And it's all encompassed within this, this doc and notion. The doc has the product summary. It has the high level technical research. It has all the input from everyone in the team. And we've defined the scope of what exactly is going to be built. And then we move on to this, this step of like, after we have all that information, now how exactly will we implement this? And part of that, that forces you to really think through the feature before you even start to build it. And what you should also be coming back with is, is technical estimates of how long each of those atomic units take in terms of hours. And this is something that we're, you know, been just, we're still very early in, in uh, this approach. I think it's great in theory, but a lot of this has, you, know, you need to find the process that works for you. Because I think everything we've talked about seems pretty straightforward to me. But the challenge turns into how do you do this? 
Yeah. I mean, it does sound like a, a very clear cut and well thought out framework and process, but I'm sure that in practice, it's it's a lot messier. I mean, in my head, this is, this is I've been like, I'm trying to do this for a year, you know? And then, you know, we can, that's me. If, if we had a bunch of robots named Ben, it would, I think, <laughs> be pretty straightforward. But like, <laughs> I am curious about, um, so you break it down into, into tasks and JIRA. They're all scoped out, technical notes, all scoped out, ready to go. How do you manage the sprints? Like how long is each sprint? Is there a, a maximum number of days before you're like, that's too long, we should break it into two sprints? Like, how do you think about that? I think the theory, there's theory and practice and we, we do two week sprints. I think um, nothing, most things should be able to be accomplished in a sprint or two, but I think part of what, there's always caveats and I don't want to go down, I don't want to get too <laughs> into the weeds. Uh, but we, we do two week sprints. And we've tried to inform our product process a lot of like what Keaton Shaw writes about on product habits. He, like our approach to technical research and what goes into a, a scope document, a lot of that's been informed with stuff that he's blogged about. Uh, I'd done the product workshop with him about a year ago. And that was what informed a lot of just like the tactics and processes in, in our product development. Um, yeah, he's definitely owed credit for a lot of the stuff. Uh, as well as Dave Shanley, who's a local entrepreneur here in Portland, who runs a company called, ran a company called Notion that was recently acquired. Different Notion, uh, but that was a product that helped technical teams manage their process. So he's like a super process man. So I sought him out and got a lot of advice from him. Most of the advice he gave was really confirming that Ben had the process right. And what we needed to do was figure out how to implement it. So it was an interesting thing in getting advice that, of things we were already doing, but at least it gave us the confidence to say, oh, we can really force everyone to go by this because we, we have a lot of confidence now uh, that you know, multiple people have told us we're, do, we're doing it right. We just need to actually uh, implement better. So as we get even more granular here, like getting into like, do you have like weekly meetings, daily standups? How do you manage progress from day to day? Um, just, just, one thing to add around the whole process and everything. One of our main challenges that we had to overcome or that we're still overcoming is having the tech team also nine hours ahead on a different continent. So our process, the reason that our process is, is well thought out and it has the party concept, uh, the after party where the engineer and product owner kept to invest some time together is because there was not enough uh, cross-department communication. So a lot of times the tech team released the feature and the support team might have been just, is this all already? We didn't even prepare support analysis. What what happens? Or or maybe we, we, it took us too long to prepare, to deploy something instead of um, having a clear communication path. There was uh, some jumping around and then and asking questions is this ready is this already uh, deployed so this process that we're that ben described now helps us eliminate or minimize the communication gap between departments yeah that is another thing i, I wanted to cover here was like syncing up the product like the feature development and then staging and then getting that to production with marketing materials, blog posts and like support docs and like getting those things all synced up. Like I know I've fallen into this thing where it's like, all right, we finally built this feature. Oh, now I got to go hustle and write up some support docs and stuff like after the fact. But are you guys running on those things like in sync or, or how does that work? Yeah. So what we've talked about thus far 
getting to the point where there is now a feature inside of a box with a nice little bow on it, that's before the sprint, right? We haven't even talked about the sprint. We probably shouldn't because it's, it's another, it's another 30 minutes. And the whole idea that we've bought into is that if we want higher quality output from the process, we're going to have to invest in better input. And so that's what everything we're talking about right now is it is input into the process, which then leads to better output. Because we kept looking at the output and saying- More research, more planning ahead of the execution. Yeah, we kept looking at the output and saying, but how come we're not communicating better? How come things aren't being released, but they're not quite right, so we have to go backwards. And we kept focusing on the output when really what we need to do and what we're doing a lot more of now is just putting a lot more work on the inputs to start with. So having these features in, in a box with a bow allows us a lot more, uh, it, 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 the whole experience is calmer. It's okay, now we, we've already done the work and now when a sprint begins, now we're starting to coordinate, now it's an orchestra, now it's multiple teams involved at the same time and then we use ClickUp which is our project management tool. And we've one of the big things we've done this week with Rock and Ben here and Aaron, our head of support, who is very process-oriented, is we've built up our template for our project templates for the project management team. So when we take that box and we start to open up the bow to actually start working on the feature, everything starts to be coordinated. Okay, now we move it from an upcoming project into the current sprint. And then that triggers, okay, here are all the things that need to happen for every single feature. And one is dependent on the other. So you can't move to the next step until this other stuff is done. And now all of a sudden, everyone look at it in the sprint and say, from the support part, I can see that this is an early access feature, meaning we want to be careful enough that this feature is going to go into early access, which tells me I need to start writing my docs. And success looks at that and says, oh, it's an early access type feature, which means I need to reach out to my VIPs and my list of early access to let them know, ask them if they want to be involved in early access for this feature. And, and that's when all the coordination starts to happen. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the process, we, I mean, when it was just the three of us, communication, the process, that was easy. It's very easy. It was, it was a daily stand-up of, of four friends yeah. talking. Was, Jordan, are you ready for that feature? Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. But then you gradually you evolve into the process. Actually, the process, it, it kind of evolves with you. It forces you. Yeah, it forces you yeah. to get some habits and some process, uh, some processes in. Otherwise, it's, you get to a stop. And then it's, you, it's too painful. Yeah. Right? It's, not, it's no longer it's worth yeah, Jordan. I mean, like we, I think we talked about it on, on a previous episode. How, like you guys are saying, like it started with you and just the few of you, and now part of the challenge is, is getting the people who've been in the company for a long period of time to change the way that they work because now you're it's a larger ship. Like the way that you did things before does not work today, so you have to actually change your habits in the process. So, like, yeah, can you guys speak to that a bit? I would say, if anything, our our employees that we manage wanted process more than we did. Well, except, yeah. except for Ben, because he's always wanted. <laughs> but, but we had to make the bigger adjustment because we were the ones used to just kind of winging it and being totally fine with it. Now, all of a sudden, you tell me that I have to get more strength than all this and I got to click this button before I can get to this next button. So it, it, it took us, but again, it was the pain that was just not worth it. And now it's just tell me whatever, to just make the pain go away. If it's the doing more boring process, that, that's totally acceptable. Like, what is that pain for people? Like, what, what is the, um, can you give us like a night and day, like what happened? Like, what did it look like a year ago? Were you shipping features slower? Were, you, were things breaking down? Like, what's the difference now? For, for us, 
we learned very quickly the nature of our product. And everyone who's building product out there will learn the nature of their product and who their customers are, where in the customer's business your product sits, all the sensitivity of it, all these different things. If you run a product that people are like, hey, it's down, no big deal, then you just have one version of life and good for you. But one of the conscious decisions we made from a card abandonment app that sends emails that at worst sends out an email by mistake or doesn't by mistake, we moved upstream, we moved closer to the fire. So we took our little Icarus wings and went toward the sun and we, we've gotten a, a little too close from time to time, right? So what we did is we went toward the transaction, toward where the money is because we want to go where the money is. What that taught us very quickly was that the nature of our product is very sensitive. And so a typical type of mistake is we are updating a jQuery setting because we just had this big release and everything went great. We're so happy and oh my God, everything is amazing. And we make one jQuery switch and didn't realize, oh, our largest customer happens to have some funky custom jQuery on their checkout page. And oops, we broke their checkout page for two hours. And oops, it happened to happen during an email campaign. And we just cost them $100,000 in two hours. And then I get on a phone call with them. I hang up the phone and I call these guys and I go, guys, that was one of the worst phone calls of my life. I'm, I'm ruined. My day is ruined. I feel terrible. The guy I'm talking to is worried about how his boss thinks of him. I'm spitting fireballs at these guys. They're walking around with their day ruined. And it's just, that's the kind of pain yeah. that... You know, you, if you do that for a few weeks in a row, you really want that to end. You, you want that to end <laughs> as quickly as possible. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's this emotional pain. It's professional pain. You're embarrassed. It's this crazy mix of, I want to be happy. I want to be successful. I don't want, I want all this negativity. And it is abstracted, right? It's not your money that you're losing, but you don't want to lose people's money. Yeah. And I mean, you talked about how, like, there's a lot of technical pressure here, right? Because it's, there's the pressure of, okay, your app is your customer's customer facing, right? Like it's their checkout experience, but there's the other level of pressure that like your app is plugged directly into somebody else's website, somebody else's environment, somebody else's shopping cart. Like they've got their own setup that has to interact with cart hook. So yeah, there's a lot of Thing, but there are a lot of points of, of potential failure that you have to rock. When we first met, one of the things, like in our like little pre interview, was like, I like a challenge. So he, he got what he asked for. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so much knowledge that, that I personally gained in the last three years uh, since working with uh, German men that it's just, it's, it's growth. It's, it's growth. Yeah. What's kind of like coming up next? What are you guys thinking about? Like, you know, working on this year and not, not about like specific features, but just like improvements to how you guys run the company and all that. I think we have a big test to see if a lot of this theory and a lot of this work that's going to the process, it's time to make that pay off. Uh, so we have some really big challenges that we're uh, taking on over the next few months. Uh, and those are going to be tests of the process. So it gets tested every week but there are some big features and products and much bigger things that are really going to test us. So we're kind of doing our track work, you know, putting in the miles before we go run the big race uh, a few times over the next six months. Uh, so I, I think generally speaking, that that's the larger challenge. We have some, some strategic waters to navigate, but it's more just how do we consistently deliver in such a way where the pain is less frequent and therefore the growth is interrupted less often. Nice.
So I know we, we're going to start to wrap up because we've, we've been at this for a while, but I wanted to just say something. I first want to say thank you to Ben and to Rock for joining us. Uh, thank you for not roasting me this entire time. I appreciate that. <laughs> the, the other thing I want to say, I think it's a good opportunity with, with, with these guys here in this particular episode is uh, when you start off, when it's one or two people, you get your joy from interacting with customers, right? That's the high. Is this person is buying and they're paying me and they're getting value from it and I'm doing something right. Pretty quickly, when you start to grow the team, the majority of your joy and fun and challenge actually starts to come from your colleagues. And if you choose the right colleagues, you can get yourself into a situation where you really enjoy what you do. Uh, and that's kind of what we're all trying to do. And so now we still love our customers, we care about them, but the, the good stuff that we're all looking for ends up coming from the people that you work with. So. Thank you, guys. Thank you. It's a beautiful thing. Awesome. So, um, yeah, why don't we uh, why don't we leave it there? Great episode, fellas. This was awesome. I mean, I, was really, like, I, I learned a lot in hearing about all this stuff. So, um, yeah, I know this will, this will be a good one. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. All right. All right. Now, before we wrap up, let me ask you, what did you think of this one? Was it good? You learned something? Are there any other topics you'd like to hear me cover on this pod? Well, let me know. No, I mean, really, like, let me know. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you. I'll read every single one. I try to reply to everyone. What's that? Oh, you're not on my list yet. Okay, well, head over to my site, productizepodcast.com. You can get on my email newsletter that way. I'll send you, you know, new episodes and all the show notes, but I'll also send you my newsletter where I share all sorts of articles and other insights on entrepreneurship, building products, productized services, software, SaaS, and other cool stuff there. So yeah, check that out over at productizepodcast.com. And of course, if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate if you could head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review, or at least just five stars. You don't even have to leave a review if you don't want to, but that would really go a long way to helping other folks like us find this podcast. So yeah, thanks a lot for tuning in. I'll talk to you on the next one.